People often ask, what, uh, what's the purpose here at Fellowship Bible Church? Why do we exist? What's our vision? And we have often said our vision is that we will look more like Jesus at the end of the year than we looked at the beginning of the year. This is the end of the year. And I hope and pray that each day of this last year, day by day, uh, you have um, walked a little closer with Jesus, maybe three steps forward, sometimes two back. But at the end of 2018, our desire and our prayer is that we will have looked a little more like Jesus. That might not be a really jazzy mission statement, uh, but that is what uh, I think we're about here. Do you look more like Jesus now at the end of the year? And as we begin a new year, will we have that same heart desire and goal? That's what this church is about. We want to help each other look more like Jesus. Dawson Trotman was the founder of a wonderful ministry called the Navigators, international ministry, oftentimes associated with a college campus work, but uh, it extends far beyond that. Dawson Trotman was a very uh, gifted man, a very godly man. Um, he was um, uh, a visionary in every sense of the word. On one of his many overseas travels, he was in uh, Taiwan, and he was ministering to national pastors up in remote regions of Taiwan. Uh, area pastor had uh, traveled with him and was his guide. And it was a very difficult trip because uh, it rained constantly and the roads up to the villages were soaked in mud and uh, very difficult to traverse. And then you get off the main roads up in the trails and you could hardly make it up those trails. Your boots were just caked with mud. After uh, a number of weeks after this whole experience was over, someone asked that national pastor who traveled with Dawson Trotman, what, what, what do you remember most about Dawson Trotman? And that national pastor said, he cleaned my shoes. Here was the grand and great founder of an international ministry who taught powerfully the Word of God to village pastors. But the thing that stood out in the mind of this guide was that Dawson Trotman, early that next morning after they had arrived up at the village, had gotten up very early and cleaned the shoes of that fellow pastor. What do you, what do you remember most about Dawson Trotman? He cleaned my shoes. In Christ-like servanthood, Dawson Trotman lived his life. By the way, he also died in Christ-like servanthood. He died trying to save a drowning co-worker. Only himself died drowning. During the four weeks of Advent leading up to Christmas this month, we have been looking at the the servant songs of Isaiah and our study of the book of Isaiah 
It just seemed appropriate that those four songs of the servant in Isaiah fit well with that Advent series. The servant songs of Isaiah prophesy of a coming servant of the Lord. And as we saw last week, if you happen to be here, in Isaiah 53, that servant of the Lord was the one who was pierced through for our transgressions. He was the one who was crushed for our iniquities. He was the one who suffered as the sacrificial lamb while we all as sheep were going astray in our own ways. He was the one who bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He died so that we could be justified in the sight of God. And who was the the servant of the Lord? Well, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything pointed to our Savior. And after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, his disciples proclaimed this theme of the servanthood of Christ. In fact, in the early weeks and months of the church, the apostles, the disciples of Jesus, focused on that theme. They, time and time again, referred to Jesus as the servant, the servant. As in Acts chapter 3, in Peter's sermon, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Or in verse 26 of chapter 3, for you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. When they thought of Jesus, when they were preaching of Jesus in those early months of the church, they, they, they saw him as the servant of the Lord. He was the fulfillment of the servant songs of Isaiah. Chapter 4, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Or verse 29 and 30 of chapter 4. And now, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal. And signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It was the servanthood of Jesus. It was a central theme in the early church. They saw Jesus as the servant of the Lord. They preached Jesus as the fulfillment of the servant of the Lord of Isaiah. But it just, it just wasn't the inspired scripture of Isaiah that made them focus on the servanthood of Jesus. It wasn't that they just were um, well-grounded in the Old Testament texts It just wasn't that they were parroting uh, the Old Testament and Isaiah's teaching of the servanthood of Messiah. It was what they witnessed. It was what they experienced with the life of Jesus that so touched them about his servanthood. And, And one particular event especially, one particular event that must have just etched itself in the minds of the disciples. Take your Bibles this morning, and we're going to look at John 13 for just a little bit. John 13. 
an incident that happened the night before Jesus was crucified. That upper room gathering with Jesus and his disciples. That last supper that Jesus had. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God, knowing all of this, verse 4, he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taking a towel, he girded himself, and then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. More amazing, I think, is the context in which this was done. Luke chapter 22, Luke tells us, uh, Mark chapter 10 as well, but Luke chapter 22 fills us in a little bit on the context. They were in that upper room, and of course, having come from the dusty roads and the dusty streets, the dirty, smelling streets of Jerusalem, they go to that upper room, and typically there would be a, a, a basin of water, and a household servant would come. They would wash the feet, take off the sandals, and as you're entering into that someone's home, the feet would be clean uh, within that home. They'd be washed by a servant. But that particular night, as they filed into that upper room, the basin of water was there, the towel was there, but there was no servant there. And Luke chapter 22 tells us that the disciples were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest in the kingdom. Who, would, who was the greatest amongst themselves? Because no one was willing to pick up the towel and wash anybody's feet that night. I mean, you can almost hear the conversation going, couldn't you? Peter saying, well, <laughs> I walked on water. Or Peter, James, and John together were saying, look, we were invited to the mountain of transfiguration. The rest of you nine, where were you? You were down there below trying to heal a, a child of a, of a man, and you couldn't do it. They're arguing, it says, who was the greatest in the kingdom? And in the midst of their arguing, in the midst of their bantering about this idea of greatness. Jesus taught them the truth, recorded there in Luke 22, Mark 10, that greatness was not defined by how many people served you, but how many people you served. Let's take a, a little deeper look here at this passage. Notice again back in verse 1. Jesus knew he was about to die. The feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he was to depart out of this world, he was fully aware of what was happening. Fully aware that in a few short hours, in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, the servant's song, the suffering servant, he would be 
pierced through for their transgressions. He would suffer the agonizing, excruciatingly agonizing death of Roman crucifixion. His hour had come. Jesus knew he was about to die. This was the hour of his agony. And you would think that anyone would have allowed him in that moment, in that agony, in that anticipation of this death that he was about to die, would allow him to at least stop and say, look, you guys are arguing about the greatness. Do you know what I'm about to do? Come on, give me a little sympathy here. He could have so easily turned the attention back to himself at a time when self-interest could have justifiably been a high priority for Jesus. Jesus is considering the interests of others. Don't miss it. Knowing that his hour had come, he washes their feet. Second of all, there in verse 1, notice that the supreme motivation of Jesus' actions was love. Knowing that he was, his hour had come, he was going to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The NIV, I think, says he loved them to the fullest extent. He loved them completely. Completely. Interestingly, the first 12 chapters of John's Gospel, words like life and light play very prominently in John's theology, in his story in the first 12 chapters. Life and light. In fact, those two words are used over 80 times in the first 12 chapters of John. But you come to chapters 13 through 17, this, this um, upper room discourse, this time of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room, hours before he is crucified, those words, life and light, are used only six times. In contrast, the word love in the first 12 chapters is found only 12 times. But you come to chapters 13 through 17 in the Upper Room Discourse, the word love is used over 30 times. Love takes the preeminent role in these final chapters of John's Gospel. The supreme motivation for what Jesus was doing, he loved those men. He loved them to the fullest extent. Thirdly, we need to also notice that Jesus' love, his, his servant attitude was accomplished in the midst of the greatest of treacheries. Verse 2 says, During supper the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. What a contrast. You have the devil doing his work of treachery, of betrayal, while Jesus does his work of love and service. A fourth observation there in verse 3, we need to notice that Jesus' act of servant love 
came from a, a confidence in his identity, a confidence in his destiny. Verse 3, it says, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Jesus was departing out of this world. He was going back to the Father. The emphasis here is not on his death. The emphasis is on his glory because he knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. He understood his identity. He understood his, his purpose. He understood his destiny. Christ sees the ultimate end. He has that supreme goal in mind. Jesus always had a much larger perspective. He lived his life. He accomplished what he did with a, with a, a broad picture in mind. He knew who he was. He knew where he was going. Also, just want us to notice verse 4 and 5 again because this is clearly written by John. It's written by someone who had an eyewitness, a front row seat to all this, and it, it was something that he would never forget. Just the way it's worded in verse 4 and 5, it's just step by step, blow by blow as he writes this. He got up from supper, laid aside his garment, Take in a towel. It's like a, a, a tape uh, uh, is being played in his mind as he recalls step by step what Jesus did. He girded himself. Verse 5, then he poured water into the basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet. Then he wiped them with a the towel which he was girded about. Step by step by step by step. It was all deeply ingrained in the mind of John the eyewitness, as was the idea that the disciples were ready to fight for a throne, but not for a towel. They had argued who was the greatest, and the greatest of all <laughs> grabs that basin of water and that towel. He was the servant of the Lord. Now, jump down to verse 12. So when Jesus had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? <laughs> you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 16, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who has sent greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, you are blessed. You are immeasurably happy. You are blessed if you do them. Here is Jesus again in his final hours with his disciples together in that upper room, teaching them a supreme rule of, of life as a follower 
of the supreme teacher and Lord. Do you know what I've done to you? It's a great question because probably many of them were maybe fully unaware of what was happening because they were in this heated debate and argument of who was greatest. They just know that someone had grabbed their foot and the sandal had slipped off and water was clean. They're talking about, well, who's the greatest? And all, and all of a sudden, they're, they look down and it's the Master. It's the Lord. And no doubt the room would have just gone silent as he finishes up washing their feet. And he says, do you know what I've done to you? Jesus removes every possible excuse a person could come up with for being a a servant follower. For if he, the teacher and the Lord, humbly served them by washing their feet, there's nothing that should stop them from doing the same. Of course, the greatest example of Christ's servant love came only a few hours later when He hung on the cross, despising the shame, and died for their sins. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul picks up on that theme. Someone may die for a good person, a friend, a seemingly deserving person, but God demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Acts reminds us in those passages that Jesus was the supreme servant of the Lord. But those passages also tell us there was not a needy person among themselves in the early church because the early church was a serving church. And where did they get that passion to serve? Etched in the minds of the leaders of the early church was their master and Lord on his knees cleaning their dirty, stinking feet like a common household slave. Etched in their minds was their Lord and Savior on a cross dying for their sins. When the example of Jesus Christ I think gets into our heart, into our mind, when when that gospel, when that good news of Jesus is truly, truly um, permeating our soul, it can't help but cause us to grab a towel and a basin of water and wash someone's feet. Serve in humble servant love. There's some implications of this passage just briefly I want to share this morning. What we can learn from Christ's example of 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 servant love, of how to move into the, the lives of each other's messiness. The fact of the matter is we all came here this morning 
with dirty feet. <laughs> something that we may struggle with, something that we are concerned with, something that hurts us, something, some pain, something that, some sin, some imperfections. What can we learn about moving into the messes of each other? First of all, becoming a Christ-like servant starts by seeing Jesus' example of servanthood and heeding his command, follow me, do as I do. What did Jesus do? He served the needs of others in love at great cost to himself. He served the needs of others. The Apostle Paul picked up on that theme in the book of Galatians as he wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He said, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ has set us free from our sin. We are forever free from the guilt of sin because Jesus paid for our sins. If you're here today and you know Jesus as your Savior, there was a point in time in your spiritual journey that the good news about Jesus, that he died for your sins, that he rose again, that that grabbed your heart, that you put your faith and trust in what Christ did and only what he did, you stop putting trust in your own goodness, your own good works, your own attempts, and you completely, solely trusted Christ and Him alone. In that moment, you were born again. In that moment, you were set free from the guilt of sin. Sin will never be an issue again in terms of a judicial act of God to hold it against you. He paid, Jesus paid for it. But He's saying... You are called to this freedom, but don't turn that into an opportunity for the flesh. Through love now, serve one another. Serve one another. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about Jesus, if we dwelt on that, if we really focused on that, if we really preached ourselves the gospel on a regular basis, it's... It's, it's what we attempt to do here at Fellowship to remind us, not just on a monthly basis at the Lord's table, through the songs we sing, the songs this morning, reminds us of the good news of Christ. What did He do for us? We are to remind ourselves of the gospel. Why? Because when we see what Christ has done for us, our Master, our Savior, our Lord, if He did that for us, he said, I've given you an example that you should do it to others. In that same book of Galatians, Paul tells us it's not just seeing the example of Christ, but it's allowing Christ to live out that exemplary life through us. Galatians 2.20, no longer am I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And it's this wonderful Christian doctrine, truth, that the moment we trust Christ as our Savior, he takes residence in our life, 
And it's no longer I, that old Mark Carey, that old me, that exists. I have died with Christ. I've been raised up with newness of life in Him. And He he has come to dwell within me. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. And so the life I now live, I'm going to live by faith in Him. And this is a second key principle to living out a servant life. Becoming a Christ-like servant involves a confidence in our spiritual identity, in our spiritual destiny. Jesus knew that all things had been given by the Father into his hands. Jesus knew that he was departing this world and he was heading back to be with his Father. There was no doubt in his mind about that. He understood his identity and his destiny. When a believer in Jesus Christ begins to understand, if we, when we begin to grasp and understand our true identity, what was accomplished for us at the cross, what happened to us, the transformation that took place, the moment we trusted Christ as our personal Savior, old things have passed away, all things have become new. we become a new creation in Christ. That we're not the same people we once were, so we don't have to do the things we once did. When the idea of the cross and our identification with Jesus Christ really gets a hold of us, and we understand our destiny is secure because of what Christ has paid for us, what He's done for us in the payment of His life, of His shed blood, when we know that we are loved with an everlasting love by the Almighty Creator of the universe, when the truthfulness of who we are grabs us, then washing someone's feet in humble service is gladly rendered. A person confident with their identity and destiny, they don't worry about their status. They don't worry about if they're being seen. They don't worry about their role within the body of Christ. They don't have to worry about what the world says of them, their bank account, their job status, the recognition of others, because their worth is secured in their identity in Christ, a child of God. You show me a believer in Jesus Christ who understands their identity and their destiny. I'll show you them on the floor washing dirty, stinky feet. Here's a third principle. Becoming a a Christ-like servant happens when we stop considering who is worthy of our service. Jesus washed the feet of Peter who denied him, of a Thomas who doubted him, of a Judas who betrayed him. In fact, none of the disciples were worthy. None of them should have had the King of kings and the Lord of lords wash their dirty, stinking feet. John the Baptist said, I am not worthy to even untie his sandals. It's he who must increase. I must decrease. Jesus 
didn't get caught up in the worthiness of who he was serving. He fully knew. (laughs) He was the master and the Lord. He focused on their needs. He loved them to the end. There's a fourth principle. Becoming a Christ-like servant happens when we realize that nothing is too menial if God calls us to do it. Let's face it, foot washing is mundane. It's trivial. It's insignificant. But Jesus sanctified the menial. He sanctified the trivial when he laid aside his garments He grabbed that bowl, a basin of water, and the towel, and he washed the disciples' feet. Working in the nursery might seem mundane and trivial and significant. Picking up chairs or cleaning bathrooms, meeting with a junior high student for a Coke after school, watching a young mom's kids so she can have a couple hours where she can get out of the house drop in a meal to an elderly person where no one is watching, no one's keeping track. But Jesus sanctified the menial, the mundane, when he washed the disciples' feet. Service. Getting into each other's messes allowing the supreme servant of the Lord to work his powerful life of servanthood through us. If you've been to to Israel, uh, and we've got another trip coming up in about a year from now, you've had the privilege of floating, haven't you, in the Dead Sea. It's one of my wife's favorite memories, of floating in the Dead Sea. Because it's dead, right? There's no plant life can't survive in it. Fish aren't in it. It's, it's just chemicals or minerals and, and uh, it's, it's dead because everything flows into it but there's no outlet from it. Nothing survives because there's no outlet. Great metaphor for what happens to a believer in Jesus Christ who may come Sunday after Sunday, hear powerful sermons, clearly well delivered. All right, laugh away. Come on a midnight or midweek uh, Bible study time for men or for women. Uh, Get in a small group and discuss the Word together have a powerful reading plan for the year, their Bible time, Uh, have great insights into the Scriptures, take in and take in and take in. But if there's no outlet, if there's no outlet, vibrant, potentially vibrant and useful believers become dead. We have to give out in service to others. Here's a a fifth principle, very simple. When we serve others, we're ultimately serving Christ. 
Remember that passage in Matthew 25? Jesus will one day say, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me and naked and you clothed me sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And as the passage continues, they say, well, you know, when did we see you a stranger? When did we take you in? When were you naked and we clothed you? When did we feed you? And he said, if you've done it unto the least of these, my brother, you've done it unto me. The body of Christ. We wash each other's feet. We're washing the feet of Christ. We serve others. We serve him. Now, it... It's right at this point that preachers would say, so it's time to, um, we have sign-ups for nursery, we have sign-ups uh, for this, and, uh, and it's time for you to, and it's a wonderful opportunity for preachers to now guilt the flock, right? So I could take the sermon right now and we could just beat each other up with it. So what, what, what have you done for Jesus recently? you scum, you know, and, and just make you feel really low because you didn't do enough. Uh, we are a grace-oriented church here. Um, let me just say this. Follow the Lord. <laughs> Listen to His direction in your life. Just follow what Jesus wants us to do. It's, it's a relationship with him. It's communion with him. I've been with people who we've gone out to eat at a restaurant, and, and it's not legalism. It's not anything um, sinful or fleshly. But they'll ask um, the waitress or the waiter, by the way, we're, we're Christians here, and we always pray before we eat. Is there anything at all? we could pray for, for you about. We'd just love to, to talk to the Lord. With it. And sometimes the looks you get, and sometimes those, that wait staff will say, thank you, yes, I'm going through this. Would you please pray for that? I've, I've been with people who they'll see um, some law enforcement people or first responders at another table. And quietly, without any fanfare, they'll say, hey, Give me their bill. I'd like to pay for that today. Just quite, just, where does that come from? If we're listening to the Lord, he places on our mind someone that maybe needs to be called, somebody that needs to be talked to. It's, it's, it's a heart of service, but it's not legalism. It's, it's, it's nothing that we have to legalistically, oh, that, that just ends up being wood and stubble and burns on the day of judgment. The last thing we need here is a group of people walking out of this sermon saying, oh boy, man, I've got to redouble my efforts this coming New Year. I'm going to make all the New Year's resolutions to be a better servant for Jesus. It's just listening to Him, communing with Him, and He'll direct us. He'll direct us. Because He is the servant of the Lord who entered our mess. He walked into our mess, and he loved us. And, and life can be transformed 
when we allow Him to use us to wash each other's feet. The story of Marion Mills is a, is a wonderful true story. Uh, a young girl from Hungary grew up in the 20s, 30s in great wealth. She literally was born with a golden spoon in her mouth. Went to the finest schools. She was educated in Vienna. Wanted to study to be an actress. And while in Vienna, she met a young medical student there. They fell in love. They got married. One of these fairy tale romances and marriages. Marion and young Otto were the toast of the town. They moved uh, eventually to Hollywood, California. This young doctor and his his princess bride. He began to dabble in the growing moving industry in Hollywood, California. In fact, he did more than dabble in it. He was totally overwhelmed by it. And Otto Preminger became one of the household names of the movie industry. In that whole setting of Hollywood, it was Otto and Marion, the, the grand entertainers of the jet setting, that there were such things in those days, of that scene, whether it was Hollywood, whether it was in New York, whether it was uh, in places back in Europe. But success, all of that did not set well with Marion. Um, alcoholism, drug abuse, multiple affairs led her on three attempts, three times to try to commit suicide. Her life was miserable. Yet she continued in this downward plunge. Surrounded by wealth, opulence, she had everything a person could hope to have. And finally, Otto Preminger divorced her, and she was alone. She ended up back in Europe and was attending an event one time in Europe where the noted scholar and humanitarian doctor, philanthropist Albert Schweitzer was there. And she was in, intrigued with Schweitzer asked if, if she could meet with him. And while he was away from his hospitals in Africa for about six months, he agreed to meet with her once a week. And he, he exemplified to her and, and taught her the value of, of serving others. And when it was time for him to go back to Africa to his hospitals, she begged him to go with him. And amazingly, he agreed for the rest of her life, she's emptying bedpans and tearing up old sheets for bandages. She wrote her autobiography. I love the title. It's called, All I Want is Everything. When she died, Time Magazine quoted a little snippet from her autobiography. Here were the words. She said, Albert Schweitzer says there are two kinds of people. There are helpers and there are non-helpers. I thank God he allowed me to become a helper. For in helping, I found everything. Jesus said, follow my example. Go ahead. You all have messes. 
go ahead. Enter into them. Pick up that bowl. Pick up that towel. Wash someone's feet. Enter into their life. Where does God want to use you? Listen to Him. And the servant of the Lord will tell us because he knows all about serving. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for allowing us these weeks to to look into the life of the ultimate servant of the Lord. And thank you, Father, that in your divine grace and mercy, you have allowed us as believers in Jesus Christ to already be transformed in our position in Christ, that our true identity is as a child of God, where, Lord, you have taken up residence in our life through your Spirit to not only work in us, but to work out through us a life of servanthood, of entering into each other's mess in love and care, knowing that others are going to work into our life as well. As we end this year, Father, and look towards this new year, may we look a little bit more like Jesus at the end of 2019. People with a a basin of water and a towel. In Christ's name I pray, amen.